It has been said that anything can happen here in the World Wrestling Federation, but now more than ever, truer words have never been spoken. This is a conscious effort on our part to open the creative envelope, so to speak, in order to entertain you in a more contemporary manner. Even though we call ourselves sports entertainment because of the athleticism involved, the key word in that phrase is entertainment. The WWF extends far beyond the strict confines of sports presentation into the wide open environment of broad-based entertainment. We borrow from such program niches like soap operas, like the days of our lives, or music videos such as those on MTV, daytime talk shows like Jerry Springer and others, cartoons like the King of the Hill on Fox, sitcoms like Seinfeld, and other widely accepted forms of television entertainment. We in the WWF think that you, the audience, are quite frankly tired of having your intelligence insulted. We also think that you're tired of the same old simplistic theory of good guys versus bad guys. Surely the era of the superhero who urged you to say your prayers and take your vitamins is definitely passe. Therefore, we've embarked upon a far more innovative and contemporary creative campaign that is far more invigorating and extemporaneous than ever before. However, due to the live nature of Raw and the war zone, we encourage some degree of parental discretion as it relates to the younger audience allowed to stay up late. Other WWF programs on USA, such as Saturday Morning Livewire and Sunday Morning Superstars, where there's a 40% increase in the younger audience, obviously, however, need no such discretion. We are responsible television producers who work hard to bring you this outrageous, wacky, wonderful world known as the WWF. Through some 50 years, the World Wrestling Federation has been an entertainment mainstay here in North America and all over the world. One of the reasons for that longevity is as the times have changed, so have we. I'm happy to say that this new vibrant creative direction has resulted in a huge increase in television viewership, for which we thank USA Network and TSN for allowing us to have the creative freedom, but most especially, we would like to thank you for watching. Raw and the War Zone are definitely the cure for the common show. And with that, on December 15, 1997, Vince McMahon ushered in the dawn of the Attitude Era, an edgier, sexier, profaner, violenter product, which would take the company higher than it ever has been and likely ever will be again. And fortunately for us, those episodes of Monday Night Raw are now available on the WWE Network for us to revisit chronologically right here on the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am, of course, your host, retired professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. So was the Attitude Era as amazing as we remember it in our minds, or did Vince Russo's brand of Crash TV crash far too often amidst a hailstorm of hand-birthing and PP chopping. That is what we will find out together, and I invite you to send any feedback our way at Raw Attitude Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Please feel free to deluge us with your thoughts, comments, concerns, complaints, etc. So now we begin with Monday Night Raw, episode 239, December 22nd, 1997, airing one week after Vince's announcement. But this episode was actually pre taped on December 11th in Lowell, Massachusetts. That doesn't seem to make much sense. You know, we're going to revolutionize professional wrestling and we're going to do it next week on an episode that's been taped for 11 days, which you can easily read about on the internet before it airs. We officially kick off the Attitude Era with highlights from last week's episode of Raw as the Legion of Doom were assaulted by Degeneration X and the New Edge Outlaws. But wait, you say, I thought the Outlaws were in DX. Not quite yet. At this point in time, DX consisted of WWF World Heavyweight Champion and European Champion Shawn Michaels, Triple H, and China, while Road Dogg and Billy Gunn were merely a tag team. However, the five of them were able to bond over one thing. 
they all hated Hawk's mohawk. And what better way to express your displeasure than by having Road Dog smother him with an ether-soaked rag so that Billy could shave said mohawk right off him. And then, in an unintentionally hilarious-looking spot, HBK and Triple H held up Animal so that China could give him a low blow, and then they all put him through a table for good measure. And with that, it's time to cue up Thorn in Your Eye, perhaps the best Raw theme song of all time, although that isn't really saying much when your competition is Papa Roach and Nickelback. Your commentators tonight are Jim Ross, Michael Cole, and Kevin Kelly. In case you don't remember Kevin Kelly, he's the guy who The Rock frequently referred to as a hermaphrodite in numerous backstage segments. Later in the show, the commentary team somehow ends up being Jim Ross and Jim Cornette, so I guess we're going with a rotating cast of characters there. Since the episode airs three days before Christmas, we begin with JR wishing us happy holidays as fake snow falls down upon the low crowd, but someone forgot to tell Sonny, so she took a credit card to it, chopped it up, and formed it into a line. DX begin the show by coming to the ring accompanied by their awful, seizure-inducing entrance, where the production team rapidly cuts back and forth between their music video and them walking to the ring, and Jesus fuck is this annoying. I remember thinking it was really cool when I was a teenager, but that was probably just because it had strippers dancing and a close-up of an ass. In retrospect, god-awful. Sean and Hunter are wearing bathrobes while China is festively sporting tinsel at the end of her ponytail. HBK promises he has a present for all the good little boys and girls, which is a bit creepy because he's presumably about to show his cock. Hunter surprisingly talks smack about the Outlaws for taking credit for last week's LOD beatdown, informing them they were merely vultures swooping in after DX had made the kill. He tells them to stay out of DX's way if they know what's good for them, but I have a feeling he might change his tune at some point. Hunter then shifts his focus to Owen Hart and tells him that because he's the baby of the Hart family, he has a pacifier for Owen to suck on, presumably also his cock. Triple H is apparently feuding with Owen because he won a paper, rock, scissors competition against HBK. Yes, seriously, that's how he explains this angle. Uh, also, for some quick perspective, we're only about a month and a half removed from the Montreal Screwjob at Survivor Series, where Owen's brother Brett was ousted from the company, and we're two short weeks removed from the In Your House Degeneration X pay-per-view, where Owen Hart returned after a one-month absence to assault HBK after his match against Ken Shamrock. HBK, however, has his sights set on The Undertaker, who he will be facing at the Royal Rumble next month in a casket match which I'm sure will go quite well for him and have no long-lasting consequences whatsoever. Sean and Hunter then proceed to remove their bathrobes to show off their boxers, which resemble Christmas presents, but they then remove those as well to reveal that they are wearing thongs with Christmas stockings over their asses. It's actually kind of charming to see the Attitude Era kick off with partial male nudity when we know that eventually this whole thing is going to turn into non-stop bikinis, bra and panties matches, and puppy! pretty soon. WWF Commissioner Sergeant Slaughter then emerges from backstage, so Sean and Hunter put their robes back on. Sarge calls out Sean for not defending his European title in the past 60 days, and he says that HBK will have to face an opponent of Sarge's choosing tonight, and that opponent will be Hunter Hearst Helmsley. This causes Sean and Hunter to bicker amongst themselves, with Sean saying, quote, the heartbreak kid doesn't lay down for anybody. Remember that line for later, as it may end up being prophetic. And now it's time for your first official match of the Attitude Era, a rivalry which would become a staple of WWF television for years, Headbanger Thrasher versus Henry O. Godwin. In case you need a quick background, the Headbangers, Mosh and Thrasher, are WWF's version of what they think metalheads look like, sporting piercings, skirts, and face paint. Meanwhile, Henry O. Godwin and Phineas I. Godwin are two hog-farming cousins with initials that spell out the gimmick for us, in case we didn't get the idea. They were initially portrayed as simpletons, but at this point in time, they've taken on somewhat darker personas, as Henry's wearing a Confederate flag t-shirt under his overalls, and Phineas is staring menacingly off into space. Michael Cole interviews Henry as he walks to the but Godwin stumbles over his lines, so maybe we shouldn't bother trying that again. 
The match only lasts for about a minute as Thrasher hit Godwin with a top rope crossbody, but Phineas ran into the ring and just booted Thrasher in the head before the ref could count three, resulting in a disqualification. Both teams brawl for a bit with the Godwins getting the better of the deal, and Phineas then proceeds to pull out two leather straps from his slop bucket. Cole calls the Godwins, quote, the kings of the country whipping matches, which I would say does not make sense because those matches do not exist. The Godwins whip the shit out of the bangers as the crowd chants LOD, but clearly the fans are unaware that poor Hawk is unable to compete without his signature hairstyle. Tragic. Now it's time for a quick recap. Dude Love defeated the New Age Outlaws in singles matches in consecutive weeks, and they didn't take too kindly to that, so the Outlaws threw Dude Love off the stage and onto a table. And when I say onto a table, I mean barely grazing a table and falling right onto the concrete. It was easily one of the sickest bumps Mick Foley had taken in the past 10 minutes. Speaking of which, we cut backstage where Mankind is somewhere in the bowels of the boiler room. He says there's a strange phenomenon. When the outlaws injured Dude Love's ribs, his ribs hurt as well. He talks about giving the outlaws, quote, the fight before Christmas and wanting to make the Yuletide gay, but I, I just have to chuckle personally. Not only because he said the word gay, but also because we all know that Mick Foley is obsessed with Christmas, so even though he was yelling in his screechy Mankind voice, all I could think was, aw, he really wants to be Santa. Flashback to last week where we get a very famous moment. Stone Cold Steve Austin throws the Rock's intercontinental title belt into the Oyster River in Durham, New Hampshire. We then show footage from uh, after Raw went off the air, I should say, last week, where Santa Claus, a.k.a. a costumed Bruce Pritchard, was in the ring waiting for Sable, but he was told she would not show up. A long-haired child then sat on Santa's lap, and despite the fact that the child clearly looked and sounded like a girl, Santa kept calling her, quote, little boy. She said he wasn't the real Santa, and he shooed her away. Meanwhile, I'm legitimately still trying to figure out if that kid was a young Tamina Snuka. Seriously, look that segment up. I'm, I'm still wondering. But then, who showed up but none other than the title-tossing Steve Austin, who, despite the fact that he's a beer-swilling badass, apparently still believes in Santa because he asks questions to find out if this guy actually is the real Saint Nick. Santa says he remembers that Austin wanted a Barbie doll and tiddlywinks when he was six years old, and I'll be amazed if you can find me one person today who actually knows what a tiddlywink is. As you might expect, Santa takes an impressive-looking stunner, and that's the end of that. A pre-taped segment on a pre-taped show. Very meta. Backstage, the camera's focused on DX's locker room, and we can hear Sean and Hunter yelling at each other. Sean then storms out as China chases after him. Could this be the end of DX after four whole months of being together? Yes, yes, I think it is. Next up, we get a quick segment advertising WWF Attitude, perhaps the first use of that term, I'm not sure, as The Rock, Farouk, Ken Shamrock, and others tell us that wrestlers are real athletes who really do get hurt, including Shawn Michaels uttering the retroactively unfortunate line, I've suffered a dozen concussions. However, he leaves out the part where he then says, and the WWF doctors cleared me to go out and wrestle anyway. Seriously, after hearing him say that line, I was thinking to myself, whew, it's a good thing he suffers a career-threatening injury next month, otherwise he may have ended up killing his wife and son. The ad ends with Steve Austin telling us that if we think wrestling doesn't have real consequences, we should, quote, try lacing my boots. Shawn Michaels then chimes in, I would lace your boots, but I forgot how to tie my shoes because I've suffered a dozen concussions. Next up, a match between two guys who'll never draw any money, WWF Intercontinental Champion The Rock versus The Undertaker. The Rock is the champ, but he's still without his belt since it's currently on the ocean floor. He's accompanied to the ring by the Nation of Domination, including their current leader Farouk, Kama Mustafa, and D'Lo Brown. Meanwhile, The Undertaker has a black teardrop drawn on his face because I assume he was a Salvadoran gang member around this time. Taker was in command early on, but he ended up being distracted when Paul Bearer showed up at ringside. The Nation members also constantly interfered on Rock's behalf throughout the match. However, Taker eventually hit Rocky with a choke slam and a really sloppy-looking tombstone, but before the ref could make the count, the lights went out 
and Kane walked to the ring with Paul Bearer, complete with his original mask and red and black suit. Also, the bell never rang, so presumably the match is still continuing. Curtis Axel, eat your heart out. At this juncture in time, the previously assumed to be dead Kane had debuted only two months prior at the Bad Blood pay-per-view, and Taker was still refusing to fight his own brother. Bearer tells The Undertaker that his parents are spending the holidays with the maggots, so Taker goes after him, but Kane attacks Taker. At one point, they tease The Undertaker actually hitting Kane, but he couldn't bring himself to do it, so Kane just beat the shit out of him instead. Bearer ends the segment by saying, quote, 1998 will be the year of Kane, which is a hilariously dated statement, and sadly, 2016 is still a year which contains Kane. And now it's time for the second hour to begin, so cue up the opening credits again, but this time we're playing We're All Together Now instead of Thorn in Your Eye. At this point in time, the first hour was called Raw is War, and the second hour was called Warzone, so yes, this is incredibly stupid. Next up, we're once again subjected to DX's terrible, vomit-inducing entrance video as Sean and Hunter separately enter for their European title match. However, before Triple H can get to the ring, he gets jumped from behind by Owen Hart in the entranceway. Sergeant Slaughter breaks it up and Owen retreats backstage while HBK and China check on Hunter. JR informs us that the European title match is still scheduled to take place later on tonight, so fear not, folks. The DX powers will explode. Backstage, the New Age Outlaws are wearing miners' helmets with lights on them, and they're searching the boiler room for mankind. In the darkness, they end up beating up someone who they mistake for Mick Foley, despite the fact that that man bore no physical resemblance to Mick Foley whatsoever. We, we all make mistakes. Next up, Marvelous Mark Marrow goes one-on-one with Scott Taylor, a.k.a. a barely recognizable pre-worm Scotty Too Hotty when he was still a total jobber. Marrow grabs a mic and tells us that he doesn't normally want the fans looking at, quote, his property, a.k.a. Sable, but he'll make an exception since it's Christmas. He asks Sable to come to ringside, and she enters from backstage wearing a full-body reindeer costume complete with light-up nose. Hilarious. Marrow then wins a two-and-a-half-minute match after hitting Taylor with his TKO finisher, which is basically hoisting an opponent onto his shoulders and spinning them into an RKO. It's actually not that bad. Uh, after the match, he looks to beat on Taylor some more, but Tom Brandy, a.k.a. the former Salvatore Sincere, comes to the rescue and beats the crap out of Marrow, which really shows you how far Marrow has sunk at this point. Brandy dropkicks Marrow into the barricade, causing him to injure his knee, and really when you have to sell an injury that's been given to you by Salvatore Sincere, that's when you know it's time for a toaster to become your new favorite bath toy. Sable then sees Marrow's injury as an opportunity to strip out of her reindeer costume into a sexy Mrs. Claus outfit, and she wishes wishes us all a Merry Christmas. Now, I can't say for sure, but I feel like this was basically the Mark Marrow-Sable storyline for roughly eight years. He humiliates her, she's portrayed as being sad because she just wants to take her clothes off for everyone, eventually she does, Marrow flips out, and they do the exact same thing again the following week. It's basically Groundhog Day, but with a massive pair of milk fountains. We then cut backstage where Triple H and China are wearing matching China Syndrome t-shirts, which Hunter lovingly refers to as his lucky shirt. You know, I really think these two crazy kids are going to last a long, long time together. So adorable. At this point, China was still being portrayed mostly as the strong, silent type, so we only see her whisper something in Hunter's ear instead of speaking out loud. Triple H mocks HBK and says he has everything to prove, and he's going to teach him a lesson tonight. Presumably that lesson is, if you want to advance in this business, you have to simulate necrophilia with a mannequin in a cheerleader costume. Next up, 8-Ball, representing the Disciples of Apocalypse, versus Kurgan, representing the Truth Commission, accompanied by the Jackal. A quick background on these two stables. The Disciples of Apocalypse were a gang of bikers, whose gimmick later went on to be stolen by The Undertaker. Alright, well, maybe not, but it was pretty close. For most of their run in the company, the DOA were led by WWF veteran Crush, but at this juncture he had left the Federation out of protest over the Montreal Screwjob. The remaining members are now 8-Ball, Skull, and Chains with a Z, because it was the late 90s and pluralizing things with the letter S was no longer cool. 
As for the Truth Commission, well, here's their summary from Wikipedia. Their gimmick was that they were a white separatist paramilitary group from South Africa. This was more than a little reminiscent of the mid-to-late 1980s character Colonel De Beers in the AWA, a quote-unquote South African wrestler who at one point refused to wrestle Jimmy Snuka because Snuka was not white and perhaps also because he's a murderer, but that's, that's speculation on my part. The point is that clearly apartheid gimmicks equal money, and by money I mean absolutely no money whatsoever in the year 1997, three years after apartheid has already ended. At this juncture, the Truth Commission is made up of the seven-foot-tall Kurgan, the Jackal, Sniper, and Recon, with former members including the Commandant and Tank. Recon is better known as future jobber Bo Buchanan, while Tank had previously competed in the WWF under the amazing gimmick known as... Mantar. I guess what I'm saying is that their entrance theme was not the WWE Hall of Fame music. Anyway, back to the match itself. So interestingly, the Jackal is not only cutting a promo while walking to the ring, but he also continues cutting a promo during the actual match itself, probably because what he's saying is much more entertaining. Not that what he's blabbing about is all that great, it's just that he's more entertaining than a matchup between Kurgan and fucking 8-Ball. He helpfully informs us that Kurgan used to be called the Interrogator, but now he goes by a much less cool name that sounds like an alcoholic trying to pronounce Nancy Kerrigan's last name. Strangely, on his way to the ring, the Jackal stops in the aisleway and approaches what is likely a planted fan. He puts a bindi on her forehead and tells us that she was a, quote, poor, pathetic wretch who has now been saved by his charm, and I can already see why the Jackal did not last long in the WWF. He's seemingly going for some sort of David Koresh-type cult leader, but he's about as bland as day-old oatmeal. And speaking of not lasting long, about two minutes in, the Jackal distracts 8-Ball, and the Kurg Terrigator hits him with a side suplex for the three-count. If you're wondering about Kurgan's in-ring prowess, I will just repeat the fact that he won a match with the side suplex. Afterwards, Kurgan and the Jackal celebrate, but that poor sport 8-Ball jumps them from behind. Recon and Sniper head to the ring to help out, but they easily get the better of 8-Ball. This brings out Chains, who cleans house with a 2x4, which was presumably left behind by Hacksaw Jim Duggan. These fans do not support apartheid, but they presumably do support apathy, as they clearly do not give a shit about this view. We go backstage again, where the New Age Outlaws continue to search for mankind in the bowels of the building, to which Jim Cornette quips, There's a lot of bowels in this building! That was pretty much the only noteworthy moment, so we'll move on. Next up, Ken Shamrock versus D'Lo Brown, accompanied to the ring by Farouk and Kama Mustafa, but not The Rock. This was a pretty brief but not bad match, which included Ken Shamrock, of all people, busting out a Mahestral Cradle. I had no idea that was in his arsenal, so uh, kudos to him for that. Shamrock got the win when he put D'Lo in the ankle lock out of nowhere, to which he quickly tapped. After the match, Farouk and Kama teased getting in the ring, at which point The Rock showed up with a microphone in the aisleway. This was not a vintage rock promo, as he for some reason teased us by saying he wanted to give his opinion on the Gulf crisis, but that he would save that for another day. He challenged Shamrock for a match at the Royal Rumble for the Intercontinental Championship, and we never got a formal answer from Ken, but it's safe to say he accepted. Rock then told D'Lo and Kama to leave Shamrock alone and head back to the locker room, further playing up his dissension with Farouk over who is the current leader of the Nation of Domination. I would actually recommend giving this a look, if only because you get to see an awkward pre-catchphrase Rock cut a promo where he appeared to want to be be anywhere else. Backstage again, and this time China is with Shawn Michaels, who is also wearing China's t-shirt, which he also refers to as, quote, his lucky shirt. China whispers in his ear as well, but it doesn't calm HBK down. JR then plays up the fact that we could see, quote, the total destruction of DX tonight, which is pretty funny in retrospect, considering that if you count their appearance at WrestleMania 31, DX has been an on-and-off stable for the past 18 years. That means that if DX were a physical being, it would now be old enough to vote in the current primary elections and buy cigarettes for its younger brother, who wants to impress his middle school school friends. 
Next up, we go backstage once again as the New Age Outlaws are still searching for Mankind and what Jim Cornette refers to as the innermost bowels of the building. Unfortunately for the Outlaws, Mankind finds them first and whacks them both with a trash can lid, during which he proceeds to recite the popular Carol the Christmas song, the one... Jack Frost nipping at your nose. Eventually, the outlaws overpower Foley and walk him inside a walk-in freezer, but knowing how much Mick loves the Christmas season, I get the feeling this will only make him feel more festive. Next up, the artist formerly known as Goldust heads to the ring with Luna Vachon. At this juncture, Dustin Ronalds had stopped wearing his traditional Goldust costume in favor of imitating other wrestlers and celebrities, or, in the case of tonight's episode of Raw, he dressed as a Christmas tree covered in lights with a star on top of his head. Luna tells us he wants to express himself in verse, so he begins reading A Visit from St. Nicholas, a.k.a. Twas the Night Before Christmas. I would also be remiss if I didn't point out the fact that he is reading the poem in a stereotypically gay voice after J.R. had just quipped, quote, Don we now our gay apparel. It may seem insensitive in the year 2016, but mocking homosexuals was totally cool in 1997. Mercifully, he's quickly interrupted by Santa Claus, who starts walking around ringside and handing out presents to the fans. The artist continues reading the poem, but Santa sneaks in behind him and levels him with his bag of gifts. Seeing how stiffly Santa waffled him with that bag, it quickly became obvious that Santa was none other than... Vader. These two will square off at the Royal Rumble in a match I completely forgot ever happened. And now, it's finally time for our European title match. Champion Shawn Michaels versus challenger Triple H. China enters first carrying both belts, followed by Hunter, and then HBK. They play the DX theme song and seizure-inducing video consecutively for several minutes as all participants enter, and I think I now officially have epilepsy. HBK begins by ducking out before they can lock up and going over to speak with China. Triple H then does the exact same thing, but while he does so, we get an amusing reminder that we are now well into the petulant child Shawn Michaels era as he leans over the ropes and loudly yells at a fan to, quote, sit your fat ass down. Ah, man, he's going to be so much less fun once he finds Jesus. They finally do lock up, and Sean then immediately drops the canvas and does his best corpse imitation, while Hunter then proceeds to bounce off the ropes way too many times. He pretends to hit Sean with a big splash and covers him for the three count, meaning Triple H is your new European champion. I guess that just goes to show you where this belt is in the pecking order. Nine months after it's debuted, Shawn Michaels just gives it up as though it was nothing. After the match, China tries to console Sean, who is pretending to be distraught. Amusingly, the always perceptive Jim Cornette says, He cries every time he comes to this town, an obvious reference to Sean's infamous I Lost My Smile speech from earlier in the year, which also took place on Raw in Lowell, Massachusetts. Commissioner Slaughter is then shown standing by the entranceway as HBK grabs a mic and pretends to cry while saying how tough it is to lose, quote, the coveted European title. Clearly, Shitting on the company's third highest singles title equals good for business. It should be noted Slaughter does not have a mic, but the camera picks up his voice saying that Triple H will defend the title next week against Owen Hart. Literally, no one in the arena can hear this, DX included, so I don't know why someone didn't just hand the guy a microphone. You would think the commissioner of the company would be able to get his hands on one, but perhaps not. This basically made it look like Slaughter was recorded while he was talking to himself. Yeah, you'll face Owen Hart next week, Hunter. Yeah, that'll that'll show you. We go off the air with Sean and Hunter pointing to China's crotch, which these days is far less coveted than the European title. A few quick facts. This makes Triple H only the third ever European champion, and this was the first instance of the belt changing hands on a continent other than Europe. The British Bulldog initially won the title in Berlin in February, and HBK then took the belt off him in September in Birmingham, England. The title will not change hands in Europe again until the UK-only pay-per-view Rebellion 2000, when Crash Holly defeats William Regal for the belt in Sheffield. Spoiler alert, he then drops the belt back to Regal two days later on Raw in East Rutherford, New Jersey, because nothing that happens on UK pay-per-views ever matters. 
As far as this title match goes, retroactively I can't help but be reminded of the infamous finger poke of doom on Monday Nitro, which would occur a little more than one year from now. During that instant, WCW World Heavyweight Champion Kevin Nash was poked in the chest by Hulk Hogan and willingly jobbed the most important title in the company to the Hulkster. Were they inspired by Shawn Michaels and Triple H? I'd like to think that they were. I'd like to think that they were. Now let's move on to the wrap-up. What was cut out? So strangely, on the network's version of this episode, the WWE censored Sean and Hunter's asses, but in the recent Jerry Springer Too Hot for TV episode entitled Season's Beatings, they showed the same footage and didn't censor their corn shoots. So I guess that Jerry Springer just gets away with everything. What were the ratings? So for some perspective, this is actually a pretty close contest between the two shows, as Raw had not been within 0.4 of Nitro since seven months prior back to May 12th, but they put up a very respectable 3.1 to Nitro's 3.5 rating. It's actually pretty surprising that they were able to go toe-to-toe with them because they were up against the go-home Nitro before Starcade, which is essentially WCW's version of WrestleMania. Not only that, but the main event of Starcade was the heavily hyped match between Hulk Hogan and Sting, who was doing his Crow routine and hadn't wrestled for roughly 15 months at that point. To say there was some interest in that match would be an understatement, not to mention the fact that Bret fucking Hart had just debuted on Nitro one week prior. Frankly, I'm amazed Raw didn't get completely annihilated in the ratings, but perhaps this was a sign that Vince's Attitude Era announcement the previous week had actually created some interest in the WWF's new direction. Maybe. To quickly summarize this show, all things considered, this was a pretty poor start to the Attitude Era. Most of the show was complete filler, and Vince probably would have been better served if he had saved his announcement for the new year. I mean, you can't tell people you're ushering in a new, non-cartoony era, and then start that era with a Christmas-themed episode. It's just, it's just not right. The good stuff? Rock Undertaker was noteworthy from a historical perspective, and the subsequent Kane beatdown of Taker was quality. Owen Hart jumping Triple H was a great tease because having Owen go after HBK's buddy so recently after the Montreal Screwjob is a natural feud, although him fighting Sean would obviously make much more sense. The Stone Cold setter to Santa looked really good, and of course Vader's absolute clobbering of gold dust with that bag of gifts was amazing. Everything else was instantly forgettable or just plain shitty. I mean, when even The Rock is cutting stumbly-bumbly promos, you know you're in trouble. Hopefully there will be nowhere to go but up next time, as the Attitude Era continues to evolve along with the Raw Attitude Podcast. Again, rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to leave us your feedback, and hopefully we can continue to improve as well. This has been Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and now... I leave you with an audio clip of the night I was sexually assaulted by Mick Foley. See you next time. Get your pants down!